Hello everyone and welcome to the Dark Nut Podcast. My name is Mel and it's my pleasure to be able to create a space where survivors who have loved a malignant narcissist can tell their stories. If you would like to tell your story on our podcast, please email me at darknarcpodcast at outlook.com. That is D-A-R-K-N-A-R-C podcast at outlook.com. I'm so grateful to have you here and let's get into the episode. So yeah, my name is Johnny and uh, I am a professional musician. I used to live in Seattle in America and um, I had been in a very lovely relationship with a woman there for about eight, eight and a half years. And just because I was touring constantly and she was much more of a homebody, uh, we came to a very adult understanding and separated very amicably. So in a very good place in my life and without even considering red flags, uh, I got on to Tinder at the suggestion of a band friend <laughs> while I was in Europe. And uh, I, I met a, a woman in the Netherlands where I was currently touring. And um, she seemed really lovely and charming. And, and we had a great connection, of course. And so it was a very weird, random kind of meeting. I, I laughed about it for years because I said, yeah, I got on Tinder. I had one match. I had one date. And here I am, you know, seven years later. So it sounded, you know, really romantic and, and stuff on the surface. Um, but what ended up happening was just this whirlwind, amazing romance. Everything, of course, was absolutely perfect. She loved all the same music that I played and she wanted to go to all my shows and she would actually carry my guitars. First time in my life experiencing a girlfriend that literally wanted to help every single time. So it got to my heart right away, of course. I never knew what love bombing was, but boy, did I get a, a healthy dose of it. So, um, yeah, we, we had... Uh, of course, an instant great connection, and uh, the, the the sex was on fire, and everything was perfect, and those you know fairy tale dreams came true. I had never never seen like somebody that just seemed to be so perfect for every aspect, and of course, she asked a lot of questions about me and. You know, I told her about, you know, my situations and my relationships. And I think there was a lot of mirroring going on mm -hmm. uh, when, when I said, you know, yeah, I was in a good relationship, but I was also in some rough relationships and I had, you know, been cheated on before. And, uh, you know, when I was really young, I had a, a pretty abusive relationship. And I think that that girl, unfortunately, had gone through sexual abuse as a child and things like that. And, you know, over years, we we figured it out. But she mirrored that by saying that, you know, the last boyfriend she had was very abusive and crazy. And she also cared about him, but he was just too much trouble. And that ended in a restraining order. And she had been married when she was younger. And he was a nice guy, but they just didn't really connect. And he, you know, he went on to be too involved in his career, which was being a pilot. So she couldn't go along all the time. And, and then she just got lonely. And, but they had a supposedly amicable separation, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you know, I, I felt 
connected on a lot of levels. There was that mirroring effect going on that disarmed me. And she was very adamant that she was a very faithful person and that, uh, you know, there was, there was accusations that her former boyfriend had cheated on her and, and things like that. So, so it just felt like she got me. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, of course, you know, me being international and touring and, and living on the other side of the planet, I wouldn't see her for three months at a time because I'd be back in the States touring and then I'd come to Europe and try and tour for about three months. And when I was here, I would basically start hubbing out of the Netherlands. So the first year we couldn't really live together, but she was constantly talking about having me come and live with her. And so I finally, I think, yeah, with, within that first year is when I pulled the trigger and I got everything situated and, and actually moved in with her in the Netherlands and got a green card because she registered uh, that she would take care of me. She was basically my host. And um, once I moved in with her, uh, that was really nice because... Uh, you know, she, she, she said, okay, now that you live with me, you can save all that money that you've been throwing away on rent and pay off all your debts. You know, not that I had a lot. I, I was always pretty responsible. I didn't have a hundred thousand dollars worth of credit card debt, like most Americans, <laughs> but, uh, even I think I had about $9,000, uh, worth of debts on, on various credit cards, which I paid off all the time. Anyway, I usually tried to keep them pretty low. And um, so I, I just worked the first few months and had no debt, and that was nice. And then we were saving up a lot of money because her house was too small. And so she said, yeah, maybe we should buy another house, a bigger house. And so then what she had me doing constantly in between working shows and touring uh, was fixing up her house, and that way we could put it on the market. and. At the time, it just felt like I was investing in my own relationship. Um, and it was presented in a way that was always for my benefit. Uh, but fast forward, uh, we'll find out a different uh, result to that whole situation. But yeah, the first, first year of living with her, which was the second year of our relationship, there was a few small little arguments and I could see her get a little worked up. And so instinctively, because now I had moved all the way across the world, got rid of all my things and places and connections in America to come and live here. Of course, when those boundaries got pushed by her, I willingly gave up ground uh, just to keep the peace. And I think that started to set the stage for the years to come because it wasn't a lot. It was very subtle. It was nothing I could even pinpoint or put a finger on now. But then over time, what happened was we actually bought the new house. Uh, we got a house that was way out of our price range, but it was in terrible shape. And since I also know how to do a lot of construction things, it fell on me to renovate the house. and. So I did a tremendous amount of uh, work, um, completely replastered the place and uh, put in new floors and painted the whole place and 
uh, rehung new doors and trim and tore out the whole yard and re-landscaped and basically uh, turned uh, you know a pretty shabby house into a palace and and I was really proud of that. It was always presented that I was investing in my own retirement. You know, if we put all this money and time and love into our house, then one day we can sell this and we'll be set for life. And that was my retirement plan that she was presenting to me. So it, it was always prioritized. Um, I was told pretty early once we had the house, and it was before I could speak Dutch, um, we had to go to the notary and sign some paperwork. And what she told me was she was going to have me sign a contract that protected me as a 50% owner of the house, even though I was unable to put my name on the mortgage because I still was an American citizen and I was intending to give up my American citizenship um, and become fully Dutch. I was starting to get into school to to move towards that eventual conclusion. But what we found out was that in giving up my citizenship, the American government would expect 33% of all my assets globally. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, they would want a third of the value of our house. So we kept me off the paperwork. She was able to secure the mortgage with the equity from her first house and um, all of my money and her money combined and we just squeaked by and she was just able to secure a loan on her teacher salary but the reality was like i put in about twenty thousand euro uh, of my own savings at the time of purchase because my aunt had given me a bunch of money my mom gave me a bunch of money i bought all of the building materials and did all the work and then from that point forward of course i was paying half of all the bills so the the contract that we signed was basically saying that half the house was mine minus the 150,000 of equity that she brought into the purchase with her first home and I said that's completely fair I totally agree with that so at the time of the signing I was told okay if they know that you don't speak dutch they're going to charge a thousand extra dollars to translate this contract so just pretend that you know what's going on I've already explained what you're going to be signing just say ya ya zeker if you you know if if they ask you anything and if it's a no question i'll kick your foot under the table and we literally like faked my way through the uh questioning and explanation point i had no idea what the lady was talking to me about but uh my girlfriend did most of the talking and so yeah congratulations we signed it you know and i thought right now i have a contract protecting me etc cetera, etc cetera. So uh, fast forward, once, once we actually broke up, that was one of the things I found out. Um, I went after the breakup to the notary and found out that all I had signed was a living together arrangement that just said that we promise to take care of each other if we get sick. And that way, if either of us ended up in the hospital, we would have the right to see each other. But there was absolutely nothing in the contract whatsoever about the house or any rights. And then also she explained to me, uh, we're in the Hague. We do like half of our contracts in English. We don't charge. We all speak English. So it was a complete setup. And this was years and years before we broke up. So that was 
quite a thing to find out. So I think that I, of course, at the time, never expected that I was being set up in any way. And, you know, that could have happened, you know, we could have broken up within six months. We could have broken up within 60 years, but either way, the end result would always be in her favor. So that was a rough thing to discover. But we went on uh, for years. Uh, she continued to manage my music career because, of course, she told me I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't good with money. So I would just put, you know, uh, a big chunk of my income into our joint savings account every month and let her pay the bills. And I trusted her, of course. You know, I never needed to see receipts or know where the money was going. The lights were on, the, the water was hot out of the tap, and the house was paid for. So I was fine to let my trusted partner manage things. And that that's always presented as in your favor. But in the end, I realized it was a, a method of control and also began devaluing me. I, I was a professional musician for decades before I met her, and I had toured the world 10 times. I don't know how she convinced me that I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I had released albums and done some pretty major things, and now suddenly I couldn't book a show without her help. And uh, of course, she went to all the concerts. And if I had a show and she couldn't make it, it was always like tears and drama and stress that was so unnecessary because I had also toured for years and years completely by myself as a solo artist. It's not a big deal, but she always felt that I needed a babysitter or something. So, but fast forward basically towards the COVID times, what, what happened then of course was the first few weeks were nice. We just stayed home and fixed our garden and tuned up the house like everybody else in the world. <laughs> but then we kept getting lockdowns pushed further and further back like everybody else. And pretty soon it became apparent that my calendar was uh, disappearing. And uh, so I started doing handyman work for people here and there. And uh, then that's basically just all I did for the next two years. There was very little live music allowed just because of all the restrictions. And in that period, uh, things got really dark. She became very cold. Uh, there was a tremendous uh, wall between us because I realized I didn't have the value that she was seeking. I wasn't giving her supply because I used to be her rock star boyfriend and we got to go to all the festivals and concerts and she got to stand on the side of the stage and not be in the crowd. And she was important. She was my manager. And now, you know, I'm just a bum. I'm a painter. Pretty hilarious because, you know, working uh, 30 hours a week. As a handyman, I was making a pretty good amount of money. There was no financial struggles. Actually, I started putting a lot of extra money in a savings account because under her pressure, I needed to have a safety net. And then there was all this constant pressure. Well, if you're going to be doing this, then you need to get a contract job. She started devaluing my, my work even. And what was funny is in times of COVID, a handyman was gold. I, I could charge pretty much whatever I wanted because everybody was locked in their house. And, and, you know, honestly, a lot of people in the Netherlands don't know how to hold a hammer because they all get free education and they're all friggin' uh, computer scientists and engineers. So, uh, you know, it's good for them and 
that's great, but they didn't know how to paint a wall or put plaster on. And like, she would send me job applications for these jobs that I had no qualifications for whatsoever, things that I was never interested in. And it became this huge stress in my life because I'm sitting here like up on a ladder trying to hang a lamp and I'm getting 10 text messages in a row and they're just job applications for the craziest things, computer networking and all these things. And she's like, you know how to use a computer? And I'm like, no, I know how to use Photoshop and Pro Tools. I'm a musician. I don't know how to even use a Microsoft Word. You know, I literally type in notes, copy paste. I'm, I'm computer ignorant. So one of the funny things that happened was she came across a advert, I think on Facebook, where there was a government program for people to get a, a free um, evaluation. And uh, it's a program where they do a complex analysis of your personality and your traits and your education. And they see other careers that you could be qualified and have a good aptitude towards. So I sat down with this lady and went through five different series of several hundred questions. And we had a couple Zoom meetings. And on the second one, she had finally the full analysis. And she came to me and she said, okay, so we're going to go through your list. And basically, of course, the first 20 jobs I was qualified for were music teacher, vocal coach, uh, you know, like working in a theater, working in a concert hall. And then, you know, we got into the next 200 jobs and they were all painter, plasterer, you know, or they'd be things like working in a restaurant or being a snowboard instructor, which was things that I had done in the past. You know, we're laughing our way through this list because it's basically who I already am, what I'm already doing, or the things that are just impossible. And mm -hmm. finally, I think it was like 280 jobs down this list. One of the suggestions was muskrat control. And I, I said to the lady, I was like, okay, what is this job? I'm just curious. And she said, well, you know, you would drive around in a truck and you would look in the canals and make sure there's not beavers and muskrats nesting in the tubes and causing floods. Wow. And at that point I said, no, 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 I am not doing that. You know, this is ridiculous. And she said, well, can I just stop this meeting right here? are you making enough money currently as a handyman? And I said, yes, I'm making more than enough money. And I'm turning down 100 hours a week worth of work. I, I am booked for six months solid. You wow. know, if I miss a job, I really have to reschedule like my whole life. So, you know, I have way too much work and there's no financial struggle. And she said, and when the lockdowns lift and your music career comes, and I said, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people and put my tools back in the, in the garage and never look back because I'm a musician. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Yeah. And she, she said, I completely agree. I've never seen anybody in my entire career that I've said this to, but you are single-handedly exactly where you should be. And I can't really advise you to take another job when you're doing so well at your current situation. And obviously, when the lockdowns lift, you'll be where you want. 
So I turned to my girlfriend who's literally watching the Zoom conversation and I said, hey, honey, did you hear this? And you could just see short circuiting going on in her head. Like she just looked like she was twitching because she just was told no by a professional. Mm. And she was like, yes, I understand. Dirt, dirt does not compute, does not compute. I swear I could smell like burning computer circuits. But <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought, okay, problem solved. Great. And literally the next day, she's sending me job applications for technical analysis coordinator. <laughs> so it just went on. It, it kept going on. And, and, uh, that became almost an abusive situation to the point where it was really driving me crazy. And uh, another thing that happened over this whole time uh, that I think really relates to uh, getting people to understand what narcissism does to a person was that at first... All her friends, all my friends, all of our family members, anybody we met, she loved them. They were great. She would always talk them up. And then over time, small criticisms started to come out about her friends, about, especially about my friends. And then eventually what, what started to happen was if I had to go to a band practice, then it was always... Uh, nitpicking the personalities and the situations and of course always about the money and the way it was split up and uh it it became such a emotional burden to visit my own bands that it it made me so uncomfortable with someone that i loved that i would quit seeing them i i quit playing with my bands i put projects on the side when i was playing with really great and lovely musicians that could have been really advancing my career but she didn't like that the spotlight wasn't on her she didn't like that she wasn't in control of those projects she could only control me so uh, all of my friendships, all of my band relationships, everything slowly just became such a headache that I chose to quit playing with them. I chose to quit calling my friends. I ended up getting in a big fight with my own father because of a fight that she caused. And I didn't speak to my own dad for three years. And the way it's done is so subtly. And, and spread out over so much time that I ended up taking the blame for it. I felt that they had upset me because she convinced me of that. And only in the aftermath did I look backwards and realize that, you know, these people were all wonderful. They were, they were easy to work with. They loved me. And fortunately, I didn't destroy my, my friendships. So I've started to rekindle them over the last couple of years. But it was, it was tough because I ended up isolated and alone long before COVID. You know, we were, we were in a relationship for almost seven years. So I'd say by year three, I was already starting to uh, steer away from a lot of people. And definitely in year four and year five, that was basically the years where I really just quit playing with everybody. And I didn't have phone conversations, you know, at all hours of the day with my friends. and and. I had really shut myself out. So, of course, in, in COVID, uh, 
and losing my music career and having to go out and get dirty and cut my hands all day. Um, I wasn't playing music. So the understandable depression that I was building up could always be blamed on not playing concerts, on not being able to travel, on doing a job that I didn't like. Of course, you know, the brainwashing, I never considered her to be my problem, even though she was frustrating me like on a daily basis. Mm. I loved her. I had become so incredibly committed because of years of love bombing. I was so dedicated to building a future together. I moved across the world to be with her. We bought a house together. You know, she was my manager. We, we had this whole lovely romantic story about, you know, hey, we met on one Tinder date and just, you know, this whirlwind, beautiful perfect relationship came out of it and there was plenty of reinforcement uh because even though i lost all my friends and you know my family's clear across the world and i'm in isolation the only people that we saw on a regular basis was her parents and um and they loved me and they were they were lovely people i really actually genuinely miss her family she had a brother who i wanted to get to know but she said oh when i divorced my husband he took his side. And so, you know, when I really needed him, he wasn't there for me. So I just don't talk to him anymore. So he would be at a couple Christmas things or something, but he was very standoffish. And, you know, I, I basically was told to stay away from him. Right. Um, she had a couple cousins, same thing. I thought her cousins were, were awesome. And I'd, I'd talk with them a little bit and they were, they were great, but she would always then devalue them. And be like, no, I don't like them. I don't like my uncles, you know. Oh, my, my dad's sister, my aunt, you know, she's, she's kooky. She's crazy. Don't talk to her. So I was even isolated from sections of her family. There was basically one aunt that she had kind of been raised by when her dad was sick when she was young, which is probably where her trauma came from. And, you know, her mom and her dad, but her mom only spoke Dutch, so I couldn't really get to know her until years later when I could speak rudimentary Dutch. I finally got my passport and everything, so I had a basic minor understanding of the language, nothing that could still allow me to understand the contract that I signed, but at least I could <laughs> uh, order a plate of food and ask for directions. Mm. Good enough. It It turned into a situation where... You know, my only connections were just the people that she would allow in the room. And, and honestly, her parents, lovely as they are, are a perfect example of flying monkeys. If you're not familiar with the term, those are people that are hypnotized by a narcissist and always side with them and do their bidding. And her parents, of course, completely loved and supported her. She was the golden child. And, uh, you know, her mom would always complain that she didn't have a better relationship with her brother. And then she'd turn that into, my mom is driving me crazy. But I think her mom was just genuinely trying to get her kids to, to enjoy each other. And uh, that was an impossible task. And after our breakup, I actually spoke with her brother. And he said, yeah, you know, you never wanted to talk. You never wanted to meet my family. You never wanted to meet our daughter. I just kind of thought you were a dick, but now I get the feeling that you weren't allowed to. 
And I, I told him, I said, you know, I was told so much negative things about you and your wife that I didn't like you and mm. I didn't even know you. Yeah. And actually, you know, as we started to communicate, I think he and I could have been the best of friends. He's unfortunately been battling with his sister for 30 years and his parents have always taken her side. So he's even gotten to the point where he just doesn't even spend time with his family. She's yeah. pushed him to the wayside. And one of her cousins reached out to me and said, yeah, I always thought she was so selfish and I didn't like her one bit my whole life. And I always thought you were so nice. And I was so happy that she had a normal relationship. But, you know, we always wondered why you didn't come visit. And I said, ah, it's the same thing. Wasn't allowed to, you know, exactly. you were the bad cousin. Mm. And I think what she was trying to do ultimately, like um, all of them shared a grandmother that uh, was in a retirement home and my girlfriend would go and visit her once or twice a week constantly, but everybody else was the bad kids and they'd only come a couple times a year. But I think she honestly made it uncomfortable for them to visit their grandmother because <laughs> mm. if she found out they were going to be there, she was always there ahead of time and nobody wanted to be around her. So her grandmother had unfortunately uh, passed away. And of course, that large inheritance, I'm not sure how it got divvied up, but I'm sure that was her ulterior motive. Just so many levels of control. And, you know, after, after we broke up, I, I see the activities and, and her intentions. It was just like a, a game of chess. Like she could always play something where you would look at it on the surface as altruistic and generous but it was always self-serving when when we finally went through years and years of this and we were in the um uh, the covid period and things were getting really dark um where i was at in this relationship was so incredibly different than where we started because we used to you know have sex like every day and we're just constantly laughing and it was such a lovely, amazing experience. And by the end, uh, we would have sex like once every three months. And it was just like some reward because I had done a hundred things right. You know, it was, it was used as a control mechanism. Mm -hmm. There was no affection. There was no kisses. I'd constantly be like, I love you. And she'd be like, I love you too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and so I was just, just drowning uh, in, in depression and, and at the same time, like just starving for affection. And the crazy thing is, is it, it had been programmed in my head that uh, I was not good enough. So I was just constantly trying harder. And, you know, I did everything that I possibly could. I, I'd clean the house. I cooked like nine out of 10 meals. I did all the shopping. And, and meanwhile, you know, she was, she had been a teacher for years at a, at a school that her dad was the principal of, and her dad actually retired in June of 2020, conveniently enough, because that's when the lockdowns came. So good for him. But in the next year, she hated the new principal and she just said, oh, he was doing such a terrible job and the school was falling apart, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so in the beginning of the uh, September 21, yeah, that school year, um, which she, she basically had a burnout and called in sick to work right in the very beginning of school, I think on like day two. And so that next uh, quarter of the school, she was just home every day and sitting on the couch. And meanwhile, I'm off working all the time. And I thought, well, maybe this is what she needs. Maybe mm -hmm. she needs to take some time off. And I was thinking, maybe this will be good for me. You know, if she can get over her stress and maybe change careers or something, then it'll yeah. take pressure off of me. But actually, it just got worse. Uh, the control really actually ramped up. You know, I had to basically go to work every day and, you know, I was constantly, you know, where are you at? What are you doing? Who are you with? So I was always sending her photos of the work that I was doing and, you know, uh, just trying to reassure her of any times that I'd be gone and, and, you know, doing construction, sometimes jobs go easy and sometimes things fall apart as you're working on them. So there was days when I thought I'd be off by three o'clock and I'd have to stay there till six and it would just turn into this huge war because, oh, you're not going to be home in time to cook dinner, even though she's been sitting on the couch all day. And I'd be like, hey, look, don't wait for me. Make some dinner mm. and I'll eat when I get home. But she would just be furious about these things and drive me crazy. And uh, yeah, it became so abusive and so controlling. By the end, like by Christmas that year, I was literally starting to to physically break down the the depression I was in, which of course was always blamed on other things, not ever her years of gaslighting without understanding what it was. Uh, a really good example was basically right in the end of the breakup. We had uh, like health insurance benefits that we paid a little extra for so we could go to the chiropractor or the acupuncturist so many times a year. And so uh, since we were approaching the end of the year, the the benefits might have been used, used up by that point. So she said, hey, go online and see how many more benefits you have. And I looked and I still had two. And so she said, well, you should use them. So I made an appointment to go see my acupuncturist. And I was so stressed out in depression. So when I went in and got a treatment and it really set me up in a good way, I came home from that appointment feeling so much better. And she said, how was your appointment? I said, it was great. I made another appointment for next week. I really needed it. And she starts freaking out like, well, did you have another session available on your insurance? And I said, of course I did. You know, I just looked. And she's like, well, I think you need to open your computer and look it up and make sure like it was some huge deal. And I already knew I had literally just days before seen that I had two of them. So I just plainly told her no. But as you know, with a narcissist, they don't, they don't process no. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, you don't stand up to a narcissist. And so of course, it just turned into this hours long argument. And she was driving me insane. And I was just like, no, look, you told me to look it up. I looked it up. And I have two more benefits. Even if I didn't have the benefits, I've got 25000 in savings. I can't spend 50 bucks on my own health and well-being when I'm sick. 
and that just set her off so bad. And, and basically I just went upstairs and locked myself in my studio for a while. I was so furious and I just reached a breaking point and I, I left the house and I just walked for like five hours through the city in the darkness. And I was just fuming and it didn't help that everything was in lockdown because every place that I walked by on a Friday night that should have been full of people was dark. And so eventually I ended up walking all the way downtown and then I just took the last train home, got back home at like, you know, two o'clock in the morning. And uh, I went upstairs into the studio and um, I chugged like half a bottle of whiskey because the whole time I was walking around, I was just like, God, I just need a beer. And of course I couldn't get one. So I just way overdid it and then went and crawled in bed and passed out. And oh, and she wasn't even in bed. She went and slept in the spare room. So I knew I was in the doghouse. But when I woke up on Saturday, I just didn't get out of bed and I just stayed in bed and I kind of just kept falling asleep. And I think about three in the afternoon, she... She didn't even open the door. She just yelled through the door, are you getting up today? And I just said no. And then that was the last I heard or saw of her. And I stayed in bed for the entire week. And I was just paralyzed and laying in a blacked out room. And I think around like six or seven at night on Sunday, I finally dragged myself out, dehydrated and shaking and really just a mess. I went downstairs and I ate like a bowl of ramen noodles or something just because it was all I could even stomach. And of course, she started yelling at me, okay, you need more exercise. You need more sunshine. We're going to get up super early in the morning. The gym was basically closed at 5 p.m. because of lockdown situations we were in, but we could go early. Basically, on Monday, she woke me up at six in the morning, dragged me to the gym, and I'm mm. not a gym person or a morning person. And made me go work out. And then I went to work, you know, or I came home from the gym, made her breakfast and lunch. And then I went to work. And then when I got home, I cooked her dinner. And then we went for a walk in the farmlands for a couple hours. And then we'd like lay in bed, watch some Netflix that she chose. And then I'd pass out. And I did this for like the next three days. Uh, like by the third day, I think, oh yeah, it was like that Wednesday when we went to the gym. I was really starting to break down physically. I, 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 at the time, thought maybe I had the flu, but I think what I've learned is just when you're this depressed, your body shuts down. And so I got to the gym. I started trying to do sit-ups at 6 in the morning, and suddenly like, I felt so nauseous, and I had to race to the bathroom, and basically everything came out of all holes, and I just barely made it through all that without shitting myself and throwing up all over myself. So I was just shaking and sick and like almost starting to hallucinate. And so I sat there for 45 minutes waiting for her because of course she had locked the locker and took the key and all my stuff, my bike keys or everything are in the locker. So I can't even get home. And she was upstairs locked into a jazzercise class and she came out and looked at me and was like, what's wrong? And I said, I'm really sick. So we went home and of course, the whole time she's yelling at me, like, I can't believe you're not going to work today. And I just crawled into bed because I had been sick. I threw up again when I got home, even though I had like nothing in my stomach. I was like, my body was just trying to evacuate something. And I don't think I was actually sick. I think I was just in like the death throes of depression. I was, I was really breaking down. And so I laid in bed all day. And of course, you know, she never did the normal thing, like bring me some tea 
you know, put a cold washcloth on my head since I was burning up with a fever. Uh, she never even actually checked in on me and asked me how I was doing. So I was just like laying in bed all day, you know, just suffering. And I wasn't happy to be there. I had to cancel on a client, which of course screws up the next six months. You know, I was just in a state and she came in. I hadn't even eaten dinner. She came in at like six at night and she said, our friends, Kelly and Rashida, uh, they have a hot tub and we're going to go over to their house and sit in their hot tub. And I was like, I'm sick. I'm throwing up. Well, you need to get out of the house. And so she literally like dragged me downstairs. And I mean, I could barely walk. I was really starting to shut down, put me in the car, drives to our friend's house. And I found this out later from them, but she had called and said, you know, Johnny's very depressed and he needs to just visit with some friends. And they were like, oh, please, of course, bring him over. You know, we'd love, and you guys are welcome to sit in the hot tub. Yeah, we'll come visit with you. And they said when I walked in, like my chin was on my chest, I was visibly just slunched over and just looked horrible. And they were like, no, this isn't Johnny's depressed. This is something serious. They could see it. And uh, Rashida took me aside and I sat at the table with her and we just talked about music and uh, my girlfriend went and sat with Kelly in the other room and they just basically talked about nothing in general, but she just kind of wanted to separate us. And uh, she said, you know, later, like after you were sitting away from her and just talking about music, you really perked up. You started to sit up straight. You were smiling. You were laughing. You were joking. Your personality came around. And then after like an hour, Kelly, unfortunately, has very bad back problems. And she said, hey, you know, my back's killing me. I'm going to go lay down, but you're welcome to sit in the hot tub. And my girlfriend comes over and she goes, Kelly's going to bed. We have to leave now. And I didn't even finish the sentence I was speaking. I just said, okay, thank you guys. And I just got up and my chin went back to my chest. And I just basically walked out of the room, gave everybody a hug and left. And they said, when, when we left, they both looked at each other like, what in the hell did we just see? They couldn't believe it because, you know, they didn't want us to leave. Kelly just had to go lay down. We were very welcome to stay. But as soon as, you know, that was the situation, I wasn't going to go in the hot tub. So my girlfriend obviously wasn't going to go in there by herself and leave me alone where I might say something to somebody. Not that my brain was even operating like that, but she was really trying to control that situation. So as soon as we got in the car, I don't even remember really what it was about. Probably that, you know, she had to leave and didn't get to enjoy the hot tub and started devaluing Kelly and Rashida immediately. And we just ended up in this huge argument, which, you know, at this point, I didn't have the capacity to do what I normally did and just try to pour water on the fire. I was breaking down so I just poured gas on it and I fought back because that was where I was at I was fighting for my life at this point and we fought all the way home we fought all the way upstairs I remember standing on the side of the bed and she just was unrelentingly going off on me to the point where something broke inside me and I was ready to get violent. And of course, I would never turn that on her. So I turned it on myself. 
Mm. And as hard as I could, I just started punching myself with both hands right in the face. And I just probably gave myself 10 or 12 really hard full swings. I mean, would have knocked somebody out if it had gone the other direction, but it's actually really hard physically to punch yourself. (laughs) Thank God. Goodness. And so I did this and I rang my bell and and she stopped for just a second and I just like looked at her. She didn't skip a beat. She just went right back into the argument, blah, 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 blah. So I just did it again, even harder. And I, I literally almost knocked myself out with the last blow. Like I, I lost my footing and, and like kind of fell and leaned into the windowsill. And she didn't stop. She just kept going off. And so I turned and my instinct was to put my head through the plate glass window and cut my throat on the broken glass. And I reeled back and I stopped myself and I was like, what am I doing? Oh my God. And I, I just didn't, I couldn't even talk to her. She didn't stop. She just kept yelling. And I just walked out of the room, locked myself in the bathroom. Uh, I think I took a shower and she was yelling outside the door the whole time. And then I crawled into bed. You know, and she's like laying on her side of the bed and I got out my laptop and I just basically started looking up suicide hotlines and I found one and, you know, she's laying in bed watching TV and I'm laying next to her on my laptop, just shaking and fucked up and start chatting with somebody about how the COVID lockdowns are making me depressed and I don't have any concerts and I'm losing my mind without music and never said anything about her. You know, the programming was so complete that even in this obvious moment, now that I look back on it, I never once even mentioned her. That's what it does. Over years and years of having your boundaries pushed just a millimeter here and a millimeter there. I was completely not myself. I was a thousand miles from my boundaries. And of course, you know, I would never blame my abuser. Now that I've been through it, now that I understand it, I think that that's something that people in general really need to come to terms with is that people that are in an abusive relationship are under mind control. There is a long progression of hypnosis that will take any rational person. There's even many qualified therapists that find themselves in these situations because it's so subtle and they gaslight you in ways where you literally think that you're going crazy. Because they'll tell you to do something, and as soon as you do it, they'll tell you that they told you not to do it. And you, you can't remember. They keep you going constantly. From the moment I met her, I never had rest. I never had time for myself. But of course, I was always in this constant state of activity because it was for my own good. And because she loved me, that's why I had to do it. It's, it's the constant pressure that basically turned a diamond into coal. And in the end, I woke up the next day from that fight and I was paralyzed. I literally could not move. And she dragged me up and put clothes on me, tried to push me down the stairs. And I almost fell down the stairs because I couldn't walk, stuffed some shoes on my feet and forced me out the front door to go for the much needed walk that I needed at six in the morning. So shaking and twitching with no control of my speech or my limbs, 
Uh, all the straight lines were twisting away off in the distance. I couldn't oh, talk. Gosh. I felt like I was having a stroke. I mean, like seriously, if something's wrong, call the doctor. But it was coming out like, and she's meanwhile, 20 steps ahead of me on her phone, texting, looking at Instagram or something, stand there and yell at me, come on, hurry up. And I felt like I was running at full speed and I was probably moving and trying not to fall over. And I mean, just seasick and in vertigo. And like, I had no control of my body. I was shaking violently by the time we got towards the house. Like it felt like my head was going to spin off. And I, I, I literally thought I was having a heart attack at that point. I was, you know, I was just, something is wrong. Call the doctor. I think I still had like two houses to get to our house. She went in the house, got her keys, got her car, came and got me and drove me over to the doctor's uh, office. I dragged myself into the doctor's office and they took one look at me and like, I didn't even go in the waiting room. I just came in in such a state that they just brought me right into a place and doctor came in immediately, like started listening to my heart and taking my blood pressure and looking in my eyes and asking me all these questions. I was just like, rah, 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 rah. she thought I was having a stroke. So she ran out of the room and brought in another doctor. And meanwhile, my girlfriend's sitting here like, this is just some big fucking inconvenience. She's not even like concerned. And the second doctor came in and did some more extensive tests. And when he tested my reflexes with a little hammer on the knee, my left leg just didn't respond. And my right one barely did. And uh, he told me to stand up and put one foot in front of the other. And I immediately just fell over and he caught me because I like completely collapsed. And I'm crying and I'm like, am I dying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like going, I am I not in a fucking hospital right now? You know, like I should be getting hooked up to machines and having my chest opened. And, and he's like, okay, you're having panic attacks. There's actually nothing wrong with you. Your heart is elevated, but your blood pressure is fine. You're okay. This is completely a mental thing. And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm dying. And he said, no, trust me, hear me out. Like, I'm going to give you mild sedative, which my girlfriend immediately was like, I don't want him taking drugs. And he said, it's very mild. It's basically like baby aspirin. Uh, you know, he can take 10 of them. He can't overdose. Do not worry. Take another one when you go to bed tonight. And I'm going to see you tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning. You just stay in bed all day. And I was like, well, uh, I was supposed to go to work. And he's like, nope, <laughs> you go home and you lay down. And my girlfriend's like, well, he needs some exercise and some sunshine. And he told her, he pointed at her. He goes, no, he needs to lay down. You go home and you lay down. If you're on the couch, you put your feet up. I got a pill in line at the pharmacist because I took the package and immediately took one, handed her the pills. We got home. Uh, I think she made some grilled cheese sandwiches, which is probably the first food I had eaten in two days. Then we went for a walk. And walk is a funny term because I was just a shambling mess and could move, you know, like a half inch at a time. By the end of it, the tranquilizer had done its job, so I wasn't violently shaking and I could take maybe three inch steps at a time. <laughs> So that felt like improvement. So we got home. She made herself some dinner, but I had no appetite. And then she said, well, we have to go to the chiropractor. Do you want to walk? 
<laughs> so that would have been another six hour walk. So I just said, no, please just drive me there. And she said, it cost a dollar fifty, a euro fifty to park by the chiropractor. <laughs> so at my suggestion, feeling so mobile now that the drugs had finally kicked in, oh, can we just take bikes? So in this state, I got on a bike and managed to make it home without killing myself. And uh, I went upstairs to get in the bathtub. And while I'm sitting in the bathtub trying to watch nature documentaries and decompress from this day, uh, she's literally sending me job applications. And I remember just screaming, stop. And she did. And I went to bed, but I was just so wiped out, passed out. The next day, we went to the doctor's office first thing in the morning. No food, no pill. We didn't even take the car. We took the bikes. So, uh, yeah, we got there on the bikes and I'm already starting to shake. And the doctor's like, well, you look better than yesterday. And I said, yeah, um, I'm supposed to go to work today, though, because <laughs> that's where my brain's at, because I've been whipped for the last you know, seven years into doing what she told me. And the doctor said, OK, I'm going to reaffirm what I told you yesterday. You are not working. You're not working for at least two weeks. You are either on the couch with your feet up or you are in bed. But he needs exercise and sunshine. No, he needs rest. And you can call your clients and tell them like, this is not happening. It was actually Christmas. It was like a week before Christmas. And we were entering yet another lockdown. So it was like completely understandable. And I called some clients and of course, they were very fine about it. Yeah, that's right. I made a couple of phone calls in the office while she's sitting there trying to tell the doctor that he's wrong and I need sunshine. And he was just explaining. He's like, yes, that's all very good and well for many, many things. And eventually, yes, he will need some sunshine and exercise, but not now. He needs rest. And uh, yeah, I was just texting my client while that was going on. And then he said, now what I need you to understand is like you're going through these anxiety and panic attacks. You need to avoid anything that is triggering you. I turned to my girlfriend and I said, honey, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here, but I need you to quit pressuring me to go to work and quit sending me job applications. I apparently just need some rest right now. And the doctor said, it is so good that you are able to communicate your needs. Yes, I very much agree. You need to rest. And we had a nice little smile on our face and we left the office and everything was great. And as we were walking out to the bikes, I said, hey, where are those pills? I really need to take one when we get home. And of course, her reply was, no, those are for sleeping only. I can't believe you're not going to work. <laughs> I basically, I was in the middle of trying to unlock my bike when I was just about to pull it off the kickstand as she said these words to me. And my hands just kind of crushed the handbrakes and my shoulders punched up and my teeth grinded and I just suddenly couldn't move. And I was just standing there holding my bike on the side of the street in front of the doctor's office and she's yelling at me and then she drove off. And just left me there, paralyzed, shaking, where I stood for about 40 minutes in front of the doctor's office, ironically enough, 
and nobody, you know, stopped and asked why I was just standing there holding my bike and shaking like a leaf. But eventually I was able to let go of the handbrakes, took about 10 minutes to put the chain back on the bike. And then I just not even thinking, go in the doctor's office, get help. I went to walk home. <laughs> and that 10 minute walk took about four hours. I had several people along the way stop and ask me if I needed an ambulance. So I must have looked a really right state. I, I know I was shaking so violently that I took my left arm and put it behind my head and was just trying to hold my head because my head was violently like flopping back and forward and side to side. So that was the only way I could even just walk. And my right arm was basically crunched up in a claw that was held against my chest. So I'm holding my head shambling down the street a few centimeters at a time. Yeah, I would have stopped and asked if I needed an ambulance too. One lady actually brought me out a cup of water and stood with me for about 20 minutes as I slowly shambled past her house. And I think she was just really concerned. But I, I, I told her, I said, I'm having panic attacks and I'm just trying to walk it off. This is okay. Of course, I'm not going to say I'm in a violent and abusive relationship. I didn't even see it. I got home and let myself in the house and she didn't even get up off the couch. And I just came in one more time and I said, honey, where are those pills? And she said, those are for sleeping. Why aren't you going to work? I crawled upstairs to the studio. I drank the other half of the bottle of whiskey. I left the house and she's like, where are you going? And I said, I'm going back for my bike. Where's your bike? What do you mean? And I said, well, it took me four hours to walk here. I'll try to be home by dinner. It was like one in the afternoon at this point. And she let me go. And so I managed to get back there in about 45 minutes because the whiskey started to work. And so I went and bought more whiskey and drank that. And then I decided I'm not going home. And I drove over to the park and I drank more whiskey and watched people run around with their dogs. And realizing that it was the last day before we entered severe lockdown, I said, no, I'm going to go see a movie. And I went downtown, drunk as hell, bought some more whiskey and realized all the movies were sold out. So I was really depressed. So I went in a bar and had a couple beers and lamented the state of the world with uh, an Irish guy drinking beers with me for a bit. And then, then I left and then I had the brilliant idea, like, I'm going to go buy more whiskey, go to the ocean and walk into the ocean and just end it. And why I came out of the store with the, uh, the bottle of whiskey, I got a Facebook notification and I opened my Facebook and managed to see the language school that I used to go to was having uh, a little afternoon cocktail party and my teacher that I used to love telling jokes with she was online and I said oh hey I'm close by and I got a bottle of whiskey and she said hey come on by so it was on the way to the beach convenient I'm gonna go have a drink and then kill myself <laughs> that's how my brain was working but I ended up going there and I never mentioned anything that was happening and I sat there with my teachers and drank most of this other fifth of whiskey and I managed to get home. I had a million missed phone calls from all of my family members in America and thinking maybe somebody had died. I did call my sister because uh, I figured if I'm going to get bad news, I'll get it from her because we're really close. And she said, where are you? We're really worried. 
uh, your girlfriend called and said like you were in a really bad place so I, I told my family I was okay not to worry and I got home and uh, when I came in the house my girlfriend just exploded on me and she had been using find my iPhone and knew I was down by the beach and she immediately went into this whole thing about how I was cheating on her and I was having an affair with my teacher and I went up and I passed out the next day it was all hell had broken loose I had cheated on her we were done get out of the house and so I spent most of the day just in an absolute brain fog of course without any medication sitting there at my computer trying to figure out where I'm going to live not able to mentally process anything that's going on and uh, she called one of our friends to come and get me and take me out of the house for a while and that friend took me for a walk around the lake and kind of got a little bit of the story out of me and then dropped me back off. And she basically called Kelly and Rashida and, and had told them, uh, he's in a really bad place. And if we don't get him out of there, he's not through the week. And so the next day when I got up, uh, Kelly and Rashida actually came and said, hey, get a couple of days of clothes. You're going to come stay with us. You guys cool off and you guys can work your way through this. Because they both actually used to work in mental health care and they recognized the use. And that was the first time I even considered it abusive. And then I saw like a physical therapist that dealt with stress and depression. And as I was going through my uh, treatment with her, by the end of the first treatment, she was like, you sound like you're being abused by a narcissist. And I was like, what's that? I'd never heard this before. And then I had a uh, guidance counselor that I had a with the next day and I opened up and kind of talked about what I was going through and she was like you sound like you're in a narcissistically abusive relationship and I'm like okay this is the second time I've heard this in two days what is this so that began my all these things uh you know there's a there's a checklist I think of nine different things that can help you diagnose narcissism in a person if they have five of them they're definitely there and I was like oh check 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 I could give like three obvious uh examples for all nine things like right off the bat and uh, i was like okay maybe maybe i am with a narcissist and but she was you know still just calling me and texting me all day every day trying to come back to the house that she had kicked me out of and said never come back to that yo-yoing that control and then i realized that she had cut me off of access from our joint bank account and you know i'm just sleeping on my friend's couch and suddenly i have no money i i of course you know having all my buttons pushed i was just like fuck you keep it all and managed not to kill her because uh, <laughs> i was just absolutely livid she she did a great job at like pushing all my buttons in a matter of minutes and making me look like i'm the irrational one you know how they can basically turn it around, you know, because I came in there intending to have an adult conversation and talk about dividing our assets and splitting up the house and everything. And very quickly, she made it very plain that she didn't care. And I was the bad guy and everything was my fault. So it's a perfect example of all those things. But we, uh, we definitely broke up. My friend managed to get her to send some money to my account, but it was like a third of what she actually owed me. And then I went on to find out that 
yes, in fact, there was no contract signed at the house and scammed me. She said that she had called the police and the police had been looking for me when I was missing. And I learned that uh, nobody in the Netherlands had been called. Her parents didn't know. None of our friends knew. So here I am basically on suicide watch. And nobody that was here could do anything. Only my family was told. And my friends asked, well, when did the police check up with you? And I said, I never heard from the police. So we went to the police department and explained what was going on. And they said, no, she didn't call us because if she had, we would have found you. We would have to find you. It's our legal obligation. Like we cannot stop looking for you until we find you. And when we find you, you have to be in custody for 72 hours and be psychologically evaluated before you're allowed to be released. So she definitely not us looking for you. So upon learning all this, you know, talking to my counselors, they all came to the same conclusion. They were like, wait a minute, she scammed you out of all the money and had a life insurance on me. Had you gone and killed yourself, nobody would have known why. Only your family had been informed, so it would have made her look like she was trying to do the right thing. But nobody in the Netherlands, where they actively could have gone out and looked for you, was looking for you. She was literally trying to kill me. And through the grace of God and all the angels that always look over me, I managed to instead get drunk with my teacher and somehow got home without getting run over by a train. Uh, I don't know how I survived, but I'm grateful for it. I learned that 25, 30 years ago, as they were really starting to diagnose this, uh, the typical behavior counselors were dealing with 2 or 3% of their clients dealing with narcissistic abuse. And now in modern times, it's coming up to 20 or 25%. And I don't think that's necessarily just because they're able to diagnose it better. I, I honestly think that more and more people are being traumatized by modern society and modern situations, and it's actually creating more narcissism. We're, we're in an unfortunate look-at-me, look-at-me, look-at-me society with all of our social media, and uh, everybody's so disconnected from real human engagement because we're spending so much time on our screens and i think it's a an unfortunate double-edged sword you know i i love technology i love being able to have this conversation with you from europe while you're in, in australia and i can talk to my parents and they're in america and it's it's just a button push away but at the same time i think we're all more disconnected than ever before because we don't actually have to talk face-to-face. -face. So one thing that I've really been trying to do, I'm trying to establish my friendships in a way that I can, and it's hard to describe to somebody who's never experienced it, the damage that this kind of relationship can cause. And I know I'm going to be dealing with this for years. I'm in therapy still. Um, actually, uh, Knowing that retelling this story is a bit traumatic, I made sure that we did this on a day like I'm going to leave here in a minute and go to my counselor. <laughs> Anybody else, I recommend you do the same. Like if you've gone through this, 
do whatever it takes to get into professional treatment, talk to somebody who understands because in our relationship, we had some problems at one point when she got fight with my dad and on her recommendation, we went to counseling as a couple. And now I look back and I realized from the moment we got there, she had that guy wrapped all around her finger and convinced that everything was my fault. So even professional counselors, if they're not familiar with narcissism, they won't see it. They're really deceptive. They're really charming. These are a very special kind of monster. And uh, hopefully uh, all of the people listening to this uh, can take away something from this story. You have to be incredibly careful. Look for red flags you're in a relationship that's too good to be true it is too good to be true it, it feels good to share this with the universe um hopefully i never used her name i'm trying not to you give didn't. her you didn't any any credit um i will continue to tell my story in great detail i i kind of intend eventually to put my own podcast together and really break these stories down and even put some music out about them so if yes. you want to want to eventually see that when it comes out you can go to johnnysmokes.com j-o-n-n-y and uh yeah it may take a couple years because i've still got a lot of healing and repair to do before my creativity can manifest itself in the best way but that's all i can do with it is just warn others and hopefully bring some light into the world because there's just far too much darkness these these monsters uh i don't know if we can do anything to heal them, but we can protect ourselves and protect other people. And I guess that's the best we could hope for in this situation. It's sad because I know that she and other people like her are human. And uh, I don't mean to, you know, really call her a monster. I understand empathetically, of course, that she was traumatized in some way as a child. And this is how her personality has chosen to react. But I feel, you know, it is a choice and you, you made it a dark choice and you're just leaving a trail of destruction. Uh, you know, I spoke with her ex-boyfriend. I spoke with her husband. All of them were traumatized by her. Turns out she was the abusive one. Turns out she had actually cheated on both of them. And I found out she very likely had cheated on me, maybe multiple times. And... So all the accusations and everything were probably just reflections of who she really was. That's a pretty common thing I've discovered. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, if, if you are dealing with this in your own life, please seek help, reach out, get on Facebook groups like we did. I think that's how we met. Um, yes, yeah. And, you know, don't be, don't be afraid to tell your story. Don't feel guilt. I'm, I'm realizing that all the things that I went through, all the, the dark thoughts that I had and continue to have, all the, the self-doubt, the self-loathing, all of that, it's, it's a natural human reaction to the abuse cycle that we're put through by these people. And it's okay. You know, I will be okay. You are okay. We do have the ability to recover. There's, there's help. There's... There's a community of people that are survivors out there trying to help other victims become survivors themselves. And, you know, 
God willing, like one day I'll have the strength to more than just survive. I want to become a warrior and I want to, you know, help protect other people from uh, this epidemic of narcissism. And that's, that's the best I can hope for. And I hope all of you guys out there uh, are able to recover if you need it. I hope if you're just dabbling in this and trying to understand for somebody else that you open your heart and don't uh, criticize somebody for going through this. That can happen to the best of people. We all need to protect each other and, and shine some light on this. It's a very uh, dark and destructive epidemic that we're dealing with. So be part of the, the solution. Be, be a light. <laughs> Johnny, honestly, your strength has been amazing to see in your testimony today. And I think so many people are going to benefit from your story. Thank you. Man, that felt good. Thank you so much to Johnny for coming on today and telling us his story. Once again, I would be so grateful if you could come on and tell me yours. Please email me at darknarkpodcast, that's D-A-R-K-N-A-R-C podcast at outlook.com. Thank you and I hope you have a blessed day. Bye-bye.